This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Now, we are leaving off where we came from last week, which is counting down the top 10 best picture winners in the eighth decade of the Academy Awards history. We are going from 1998 to 2007. And so last week we covered 10 through 6. Today we are doing 5 through 1. Plus, the awards that we have in joining me once again is Stephanie Pryor. Stephanie, thank you. Hey, hey. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing off this list. So we, first we were talking about movies that we didn't care for as much. Now we're going to talk about movies we really like. Does that make you more excited? Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to quickly run down what we covered in the last episode. Coming in at number 10 was Crash. At number nine was Million Dollar Baby. At number eight was A Beautiful Mind. At number seven was Lord of the Rings Return of the King. And at number six was American Beauty. So now we're going to get right into it and start at the number five. Stephanie, what do we have? All right. Coming in at number five was Shakespeare in Love. I'm going to write me a sonnet, Will. Meet young Will Shakespeare. I have a sonnet to write. Sonnet? You mean a play? He's out of luck. I say this theater is closed. Notice will be posted. Out of money. I'm still out of money for this play. What is money to you and me? And out of ideas. I hear you have a new play for the curtain. What's it called? Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. The world's greatest ever play playwright, William Shakespeare, is young, out of ideas, and short of cash, but meets his ideal woman and is inspired to write one of his most famous plays. Uh, I have seen this several times, and I remember liking it, and I enjoyed it just as much watching it again. I think it is a very funny film um, with quiet moments, but I think overall I found it more of a comedy than anything. How did you feel? I haven't seen it in quite a few years, and I think the first time I watched it was in my phase of, oh, chick flicks are gross. Um <laughs> And because this is more of a romantic comedy, but uh, coming back to it after after quite a while off from seeing it, it's actually not bad. I, I quite I quite liked it. Uh, this is one that was kind of middle of the pack for me and ended up in, in fifth place due to the way we rated them. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I liked it. You know, there's there's plenty of Shakespeare Easter eggs, especially early on, but throughout the whole movie, uh, little hints to his other works whether they're plays or his sonnets or just him as a person and i think that the the production does a really good job some of them seem a little forced but for the most part i think they're pretty clever in a way that people that were the the geeky english nerds can really appreciate and kind of have a movie for them the drama nerds and the english nerds where they can kind of coalesce together and they do a good job with that um, the movie's casting of the leads of, uh, of Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow are interesting. I think they both do their parts well, but I don't think, like, they possibly could have been better performances, but I think they're serviceable enough. Hmm. I liked Fine's performance. I think he was more than fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but Gwyneth Paltrow's performance, she didn't bring anything new to me that I've seen Gwyneth Paltrow do before. It was a very, you know, especially during that time where Gwyneth Paltrow was in so many of these types of films. Um, you know, it was good. It was the same. It was passable. Uh, but I actually quite enjoyed Joseph Fine's performance. Yeah, I, th I think he did a good job. I think more than anything, I think it's the supporting cast around them that did a terrific yeah. job. Th this is a, a pretty large ensemble cast where you get some some well-known British actors and then a lot of unknown people. But I think for the most part, everyone brings their A-game, whether how big or small their part is, which I think is really indicative of what this movie is sort of about, where there are no... You know, large, there are no small parts, small parts, only small people sort of joke. Um, they, they do a lot of great things, you know, whether it's uh, Jeffrey Rush or uh, Judy Dench or I, I can't even think of everyone that's in this Tom, Tom Wilkinson. There's so many people in this movie that, that do a good job and bring to the table what they need to to really bring this world to life. Um, Paltrow's not a very convincing boy. No, not at all. Uh, especially interesting, you know, considering the world we live in today where, where RuPaul's Drag Race is the most popular show on, on TV in some sections of the world. Um, she barely disguises what it is, has this terrible pixie wig on and the worst mustache that you've seen. And it's like, no, that's definitely a woman. Yeah, how does anyone <laughs> not know? And it's not even that she, like, puts on a little bit of a deeper voice either. It's no. like her 
regular voice. Yeah. So it's like, okay, folks, come on. We know. And it's interesting because it's not like Gwyneth Paltrow is like the most curvaceous woman. It's not like someone no. like Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. If she tried to do male drag, it'd be like, you can't hide those things, girl. <laughs> it's like, you just look like a girl with large bloomers on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't very convincing. And I think like that stupid mustache goatee was really what did it for me. Yeah, it, it was pretty terrible. Yeah. I thought it was also very prescient, this idea of the theaters closing due to the plague going on, but oh, they yeah. were reopened due to the fear of losing money, Yeah, yeah. Uh, which clearly is the time that we were living in right now. Yeah, it seemed weirdly <laughs> topical. Yeah. Also, I feel like everything that I watch, I'm like, oh man, this yeah. is just what it is right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely funny seeing that. Um, Colin Firth, the knife-wielding badass with a pearl drop earring. Oh, yeah. He did a great job. It's, it's kind of interesting because I've always felt Colin Firth was an old man. And this, he's like right on the precipice of being old man Colin Firth, but still kind of young enough that he could be a bit of the heartthrob if he wants to. <laughs> well, I think during those times too, right, the men were always older than the women anyway mm-hmm. when they were being, you know, married off. So I think it worked for sure. Um, yeah, he was great. I also was a huge fan of Jeffrey Rush. I thought he was a fantastic supporting character. Um you could laugh at him and with him, which I thought was really important. But also, oddly enough, one of my favorites was Ben Affleck. He has such a small role, but whenever he was on screen, I just bought it. I I ate that character up. I was like, yeah, that make that works for me. It's interesting. I I, I wondered if we were going to be on the same page or not, and uh, and I think we are because. Ben Affleck is someone who's kind of suffered from being typecast as this handsome, roguish leading man. But as sort of time has gone on, you know, he went first of being the the laughing joke of the the other half of Matt Damon, where Matt Damon was the one that clearly wrote all of Goodwill Hunting, and Ben Affleck was just there for the ride to slowly reinventing himself as a as a really solid blockbuster director type of person and someone whose career is maybe being reappreciated now and i think looking back at the time he was clearly cast one because he was dating Gwyneth Paltrow and he wanted to be around her but because he was, he was looked at as this sort of handsome pretty boy snobbish guy and that's kind of what they tried to do with him yeah but i think he actually has a bit more depth than we're giving him credit for yeah i think so uh, he definitely had that like oh i'm a i'm a top actor where are all my lines and i like, go mm-hmm. oh, well you you have this like uh, monologue this like soliloquy that's happening oh okay i'm into it i'll play <laughs> that character so it was kind of funny now he isn't going to Spoiler alert, make my cut for Best Supporting Actors. But I actually did strongly consider putting him in the running there because I think he did quite a good job. Uh, and, and outside of the Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth, I think he probably gave the best performance of everyone. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he really makes it work whenever he's on screen. Yeah, he, he makes every second count that he's got something to say. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the Judy Dench performance? I mean, it was Judy Dench. It was kind of along the same lines as what I said with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, it's what I expect from Judy Dench. It's what I want from Judy Dench, and it's what I got from Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. I think she was. She was nice and matriarchal. She does a good job of both being serious and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that she won an Oscar for one of the shortest on-screen performances ever. But I think she does a decent enough job to to warrant uh, praise for what she does. Yeah. Where clearly there is an element of superiority that she is able to uh, inhabit. And, and everyone else in the scenes with her goes along with it that it, it looks appropriate. Yeah. I think interestingly enough is this movie very easily could have been a lot more cheesy and things like that. But overall, I think the, you know, the power of of Shakespeare in his written work and the love of theater that clearly everyone involved has was something that really shone through and kind of worked. Like, it's a little bit cheesy, but I appreciate what it was trying to do still. Yeah, for sure. Um, I agree. Yeah, overall, I think, you know, it's they did a, a pretty good job uh, with this and... I know a lot of people are, are very critical of the fact that it, it beat out both Saving Private Ryan and The Thin Red Line, uh, and Elizabeth was the the other nominee. And yes, I think either Thin Red Line or Saving Private Ryan should have won. I think this is actually a, a pretty decent film. I don't know if it's maybe in the top tier for Best Picture winners, but it's a solidly good movie. Yeah. 
Coming in at number four is Gladiator from 2000, directed by Ridley Scott. The general became a slave. The slave who became a gladiator. The gladiator defied an emperor. Only a famous death will do. A former Roman general sets out to exact vengeance against the corrupt emperor who murdered his family and sent him into slavery. So this is a movie I have not seen since I was a child, probably uh, close to the 2000 time when it came out. Uh, This was a movie that was always sort of a very visceral one and hard to stomach. Um, And that opening battle sequence, I think, really rivals Satan Private Ryan as well for, for pure blood and action sequences, which is really interesting. It definitely has held up. We talked about in the last episode, Return of the King, and most of the sequences there not really holding up. I think Gladiator does hold up. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I think it shows not just the um, the war scenes, but even like in the Colosseum and everything that that's happening around and the different um, little markets and stuff they go through, it all looks great and holds up and definitely reads better than Lord of the Rings did for me revisiting. Mm -hmm. I think a big key for this also succeeding so well is the costumes and set design. The costumes especially. There's a few sequences. My favorite uh, costume piece has to be the, the lion mask. Uh, that one of the gladiators wears mm-hmm. where he flips it down and it's the lion face. Oh, I love that yeah. scene. That's a really cool bit. Uh, but they do a really good job with, with all the gladiators and also the, the the nobility people as well, giving them uh, a good differentiation between them. So something that really works for me is the costumes. Yeah, they're beautiful and great, as well as the uh, the production. The set design is fantastic, and fantastic in this as well. It just brings you right to that period of time. Um, and it's totally believable. Yeah, there, there's some CGI that you can see that doesn't quite work in it. Some of the, the Coliseum scenes where they, they make the crowd look bigger or some um, establishing shots where you see like some terrible CGI birds fly through the frame. <laughs> that doesn't really work out. But for the most part, it's it's pretty minimal and, and mostly relies on more practical effects, which I do appreciate. And they do a, a really good job with that. Uh, I also think this movie has some some interesting political themes going on. You know, the idea at the very beginning uh, where the first emperor who is um, who is being played by Richard Harris is deciding whether or not he wants to crown his son or the Russell Crowe character, uh, Maximus, to be the next uh, emperor is interesting because this the idea of anyone who wants to rule is unfit and therefore those who don't want to are the best for the job is something that we mm-hmm. still see today. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know who came up with that original quote about whoever wants to be president should automatically be disqualified. That's sort of the, the long running joke sort of thing where they, they explore that in this and someone who doesn't want to lead and cares more about his people and wants to lead by example without the actual title is a better suited leader to someone who just wants the power of being able to lead. And I think they do a good job showing those two contrasts of Joaquin Phoenix's character and Russell Crowe's characters. Yeah, I agree. I think both of them played their characters really well and really believably. And I think the chemistry that they have together when they're on screen is really great for, um, you know, two rivals, one who, who doesn't want what the other one has and one who does want everything that the other guy has. You know, you're fighting for attention and love from your father. You're fighting for a country in power. There's, there's all these different dynamics that um, neither of them seem to share, but when they're together, like coincide and create some sort of like cool on-screen magic. Mm -hmm. I remember at least thinking back to it, thinking Joaquin Phoenix's character was was very whiny and sort of entitled and things like that where on the flip side i think watching it now especially where where phoenix's career has gone and, and personally i think he's probably the best working actor today um he imbues it with so much more paranoia and you sort of understand what his motivations are a lot better than you think you would going back to this you know, he's not a good leader by any stretch of the imagination and he does things impulsively, but you also understand where his mindset is sort of coming from and as far as securing his legacy and what he believes to be his family's legacy to be because he considers himself to be of royal blood and things like that. It makes it a lot more understandable and believable all the actions that he sort of takes and it works really well 
and Joaquin Phoenix, as I said, one of my favorite actors, you really understand where he's coming from as like an up and coming performer and making the choices that he decides to make. Yeah, I would agree there. I, I think there's sort of a, a few really interesting shots. For me, there's this one really early on when uh, Maximus is being picked up by the slave traders and they think he's dead. And it basically looks like he's floating. And they actually do this shot twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. And it's this great kind of Malik-like hellscape where you get like the, the shots of the sun setting and rising and the clouds moving quickly and it looks like he's floating when reality uh he's being carried by a cart so it's got like some nice little layers to it and there's some really clever camera tricks in this movie where i think really adds to it where it could just be your typical sword and sandal actiony movie but there's a bit more depth to it as far as what the what ridley scott wanted to imbue onto it Mm, yeah, I appreciate those liberties and the different things that he injected into it. Mm-hmm. And I think as far as maybe more interesting political ideas go for it, this idea of when you fight for a colonizer, you have the blood of the worst parts like slavery on your hands. And I think this movie doesn't shy away from that because, you know, it starts out all this epic you know, two armies fighting together against each other. You know, they're both noble fighters, warriors, all this sort of stuff. But as the movie sort of goes on and we understand that the Holy Roman Empire kind of had a lot more going on with it, and especially enslaving other nations, I think they do a pretty good job of articulating the uh, moral wrongness of that and understanding Max's uh, growing concern for the people and maybe why he didn't want to be a leader to begin with is that he's not someone that wants to enslave. He'll fight for if the cause is right, but he's not fighting to take over other people. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the, like you said, the main, you know, crux of why he wouldn't take over and become leader. He didn't want that. Uh, it's not necessarily what he believes in. He'll fight for his country, but he doesn't want to be the the driving force for the war. To make those decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Joaquin Phoenix's character, you know, he wants he wants that opportunity to show that um, he is everything and deserves to have that power and that position, and, and he wants it for the opposite reasons. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Russell Crowe's performance? So this is the second Best Picture winner with Russell Crowe. Yeah, this one is much better for me than A Beautiful Mind was. I really liked Russell Crowe in 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 this film, and I think, um, you know. He's had a lot of praise for it, but I think it's well-deserved. And, you know, he shows his strong side. He shows his sensitive side. He kind of has this giant roller coaster throughout the film, being the strong character and then losing his family and then having to fight back and, and, and fight for everything that he has and for revenge. I think he plays it well, and I really enjoyed his performance. I think he he's an actor that has a very limited range. He, he can be the tough guy that has a bit of a sensitive side. And I think this movie kind of is able to hone in a bit better of his strengths than what a beautiful mind did, where I think it sort of relied too heavily on the sensitive side of his, of his characters, which isn't something I don't think is a strong suit. Yeah, no, for sure. I would agree. So this is why I think is probably maybe the go-to movie that most people think of when they think Russell Crowe's better performances. And for a good reason, anytime uh, a director is able to kind of tailor a role to its lead actor, I think it will be better for it. Yeah. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is kind of the complete opposite where he'll take on anything and add way more layers and depth to it than you probably originally envisioned or was maybe on the page in the first place. Uh, So I think, I think him balances, I think he balances Russell Crowe very nicely in this. Yeah. All right, what do we have coming in at number three? Number three, The Departed. This is not the regular police. This is the state police. We are an elite unit. This is who we're after. Frank Costello. You won't be paid as a regular cop, but there's a bonus involved. So what do I do? From 2006, an undercover cop and a mole in the police attempt to identify each other while infiltrating an Irish gang in South Boston. I remember when we first watched this movie, you really liked it. You were nervous about me watching it. I'm not a huge Corsese fan. And you were very shocked at the fact that I was in total infatuation with this film. I wanted to rewatch it right after it ended. I was hooked from the very, you know, first 
Irish jig angry song <laughs> that comes on the screen. And um, it had me the entire way. I think the performances are fantastic from everyone in this. The uh, direction, the editing, the writing, it's all there and it all works for me. And it's one of my favorite films. Interesting, yeah. Uh, Irish jig that you're talking about is uh, Shipping Up to Boston by Dropkick Murphys, which most people probably know if they're baseball fans as the the Red Sox unofficial anthem after Sweet Caroline or, or maybe associated with Jonathan Papelbon, which was his uh, walkout music back in the day. So anyone that hates the Boston Red Sox definitely <laughs> knows, probably has very strong feelings about that song in particular. But yeah, it, you know, that song kind of joins the pantheon of great Martin Scorsese rock songs. He uses the Rolling Stones several times in this film, sometimes the same song a couple times. Uh, uh, it's what he does. He he pairs great music to imagery, and, and he did it again with this one, and I was really impressed with it. This was the turning point for me for appreciating Leonardo DiCaprio. I had always written him off, never appreciated the few movies I had seen. I, I actively avoided them for the most part. I finally saw this one. And it basically really turned my perception of him around. And since then, I've always been a big fan of what he has done. And I've actually been able to go back and enjoy his earlier stuff uh, quite a bit. Some of it, it I think, his, his Titanic and stuff around that era still isn't all that great as far as his performances go. But I think he has really turned into a really fine actor, much like someone like Ben Affleck, who was sort of cast as uh, the handsome pretty boy, but actually has a lot more going on for him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm also not the biggest Leonardo DiCaprio fan. And I've seen movies before this, and I saw movies of his after this. Um, And when I went and first saw this one, this also was a turning point where I was like, oh, Maybe I do like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and then I was thinking of the movies that I've seen after I watched The Departed. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, he was really good in that. Oh, and I kind of like doing that too. So it kind of like reawakened or I guess just awakened my like for his acting. So this really made me appreciate him more. What did you think of Matt Damon's performance? Because the two of them, I think they need to both be working on the same level for this movie to work because they're basically co-leads in this movie. Yeah. I think it works also. (laughs) This is funny because I'm also not the biggest Matt Damon fan um, because I think all of his characters are kind of the same character in one note. But um, I think they are on the same level here. And I like that they're kind of like the juxtaposition of each other. They're the opposites again, which is why I think it works. And you've, you've got someone who's who had everything and whose intentions are wrong and someone who's had nothing and whose intentions are pure pitted against each other again. So it's kind of that whole like gladiator dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think Matt Damon does a terrific job in this. He, he managed to manages to balance out being supposedly the good guy with being the bad guy at the same time. And, uh, and does a lot with his motivation and interactions with different characters that I really appreciate, especially in his scenes with the other police officers where mm-hmm. he has to thread that balance of not giving himself away, but giving a little bit of himself away and trying to be on their side while not being on their side. So it's really so much going on. Yeah. Um, but I think we wouldn't be able to talk about this movie without talking about the Jack Nicholson performance because you've got these two leads who, for the most part, are pretty subtle. And then you've got Jack Nicholson, who is basically the epitome of a guy swinging his dick around. Yeah, I mean, Jack Nicholson does as Jack Nicholson does. Like, he just is Nicholson. And I think he brings the same character and, you know, um, charismatic charm to this, even though he's, you know, clearly... He's basically playing the devil. Yeah, like a gang leader, but he, and the twist that comes near the end too also was like, oh, whoa, okay. There's so many twists in this one. But um, I thought it was really good and also made sense. And I feel like this kind of character could have been taken over the top and could have been too far on one side of the line than the other and i think he played it really well yeah i think this is this has to do with scorsese reining him in at certain points but also letting him loose and doing whatever he wants there's there's a few moments where he just absolutely bonkers there's the scripted moments where he's bonkers and then there's just like his his little facial features yeah like there there's a there's a short scene where he's having dinner with leo and then uh he's he leaves and 
Leo thinks he's left, except for he creeps up behind him and starts making faces behind him to scare <laughs> him. And it's like just pure Jack Nicholson just kind of going over the top and doing what he wants to do. Uh, and something I, I thought did a really good job because he, he he's able to keep his men both on their toes enough, but also uh, for them to trust him where he is their leader. Yeah. And I think he handles both of those roles because he can't just be completely crazy because then they're like, why would anyone want to be around this yeah. guy? This guy is yeah. an unhinged lunatic. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's basically the, the counter to Mark Wahlberg's character mm. who mm-hmm. basically portrays the unhinged uh, cop, but, we basically learned by the end of it, he was just playing good cop, bad cop with Martin Sheen. Yeah. Yeah. I think his character also could have gone, you know, the opposite direction, gone like crazy wild and weird. And he played it well enough that it didn't feel caricature but it was still like over the top in the right sense. Um, I don't know. I just think everything worked in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was watching one of those uh, explain your career timelines with, with Mark Wahlberg that are, are popular right now. And he talked about how he turned down this movie several times. I believe it was because it wasn't one of the lead roles that he was being offered. And he didn't even want to meet with Scorsese. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? And like, I'm so glad he did take it. I'm not the biggest fan of Mark Wahlberg, but he has like probably the most memorable scenes of this whole movie. He's the best dialogue of anyone in the movie, yeah. which I cannot repeat any of no. it. <laughs> um, but he does a really good job with that uh, and plays off Sheen very nicely, who, you know, most people know as playing the president on the West Wing kind of brings a, a similar vibe to this movie as well where he's clearly the elder statesman yeah he grounds everyone's performance i think i think leo having his cast broken and and wrist smashed sort of rivals the vice scene in goodfellas where it's this really intense visceral violent moment where you just can't help but recoil in pain and, and understand what he's going through and, and leo absolutely sells that scene uh sobbing through having his his broken wrist rebroken again just to check to see if he has a wire on him and and i really appreciate what he's able to bring to the table for that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is it a scene that is hard for you to watch i mean yeah it is I, i'm not one for violent films anyway to begin with so um any kind of on-screen violence makes me cringe mm-hmm that scene and, and the cranberry juice scene was one of the reasons why I didn't think you'd enjoy this movie, actually. Yeah, yeah. It all worked for me. I, somehow. I mean, I say that I don't, I'm not a fan of violence, but this film is very violent, and there it is. I, I appreciate it that basically every shot in this movie meant something, where if you were to take apart any given scene, you can, you can see the motifs that Scorsese is trying to play with and what he's referencing and, and pulling from and all this sort of stuff. I think he does a terrific job of really emphasizing his, his camera movements, of making sure things matter in the scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, coming in, in number two, we have No Country for Old Men from 2007, directed by the Coen brothers. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back, you tell Mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near the Rio Grande. Uh, Rio Grande. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, and every time I get to rewatch it, I'm discovering new things. It's been a couple years since I've seen it, and I really appreciate going back into it because I think there's new depths that I learn from Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, and Tommy Lee Jones every time I see it. This is a movie that came out the same year as There Will Be Blood, and the big hot debate was which one is more deserving. And I am going to go on record and say that I believe No Country for Old Men is the superior of the two films. Uh, Stephanie, mm-hmm. you're a little bit more on the fence about this one, I guess. Between the two films? Well, I, I just mean this movie in general. I know you weren't as crazy about There Will Be Blood. There will be blood. Yeah, I'm not a, as big of a fan as There Will Be Blood as a, um, for, for reasons I won't get into now. But um, no, I really enjoy No Country for Old Men. I think it's a great um, film. I love its quiet moments and the, the tense, you know, suspense 
that it brings from each uh, progressing scene and you know these two men in this chase and uh the different characters that they are and who you're cheering for and 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 of course, Javier Bardem's weird character that you're trying to wrap your head around and who is this guy? I think it, it's great. I, and I, I really enjoyed it also, which is, I think, why it's, you know, number two on our list. Mm-hmm. I think the great thing about this is all the characters feel so real that they have a real backstory between all of them. From the very first scene that we see Llewellyn played by Josh Brolin, he showcases excellent tracking skills, being able to find the money while he's out hunting. Um, You know, he knows how to follow footsteps and check to see who is alive and who's not alive. Um, He also knows how to use his gun both safely and correctly. He's able to check to see where people are. He knows how to survive in the wild when he buys uh, camping equipment. All this sort of stuff really influences the character where, you know, we, we complained about Million Dollar Baby uh, telling and not showing. This is the complete opposite where they don't tell you anything. You just watch these characters live and see how they're able to do what they do. And based on all the skills he has, it makes sense why he's able to evade mm-hmm. um, Anton Chigurh, the Javier Bardem character. Yeah, it's totally believable. And you're really rooting for him too, even though you're like, why did you even bother? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, It's not worth it. But yeah, um, I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. And, and Javier Bardem, I feel, is the, the exact same way as well, where we know very little about him. But every time he does something, there is a real purpose behind it. And you understand that he's making every choice for a very specific reason. And it informs who he is and what sort of skill sets that he has. And I think that that works great as a foil. You you don't want a bad guy that's just constantly going to be talking, explaining their motivation. No, this is right. a guy that is all business. He is going to do what he needs to do very methodically and without any passion to it. Yeah, which makes him super creepy. Yeah, he, he, there's a reason why he won Best Supporting Actor. Uh, a very terrific villain, you know, the, the history of the Academy Awards uh, honoring villains with Oscars, whether it's Heath Ledger or Anthony Hopkins. There's a reason behind it. Yeah. I think his intelligence is actually what makes him so scary. Yeah. Because we don't hear him talk, we just see him work, and you understand... If he walks somewhere, there, there's a reason there's behind a, it, yeah. and, and that's what's so scary. Everything he does is purposeful, and you can tell in his eyes he doesn't have to say anything for you to be like, yeah, I believe what you're doing. And you understand what he's thinking. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I thought the sound design, you mentioned this a little bit, uh, both loud and quiet during the motel mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. is terrific. Yeah. It just like makes your heart pound, mm-hmm. because the way the Coens edit their movie, you're, you're kind of left in the dark of what is happening you think you know what's happening and then it's something a little bit different and then you know the scene is revealed and it's something completely different and yeah. it just it kind of blows your mind with how much tension they're able to build with with so little going on a scene that i really like speaking of the motel scene is where you see um Llewellyn, he's in his motel room and he sees the someone standing outside his uh, motel door we've all seen this in horror movies Mm -hmm. and in whatever what we don't see is when the person on the opposite side knows that you Mm -hmm. see him so he goes and turns off a light and it's just like Mm -hmm. like he just knows he's a a step ahead of whoever he's hunting yeah which that was great Mm -hmm. what did you think of Tommy Lee Jones's character because there's times where I, I sort of differ of the fact of how good of a police detective he is um, because it, it wouldn't be unlike the Coens to have an idiot law enforcement person. Uh, this time watching it, I, I felt a lot more sympathy for him and thought he was uh, good at his job and also his partner who the first few times I watched it, I always kind of chalked him up as being a bit of an idiot, but it turns out that he kind of knows a bit more than he's leading on as well. Yeah, I think... You know, you're seeing two people at the opposite ends of their career. Tommy Lee Jones is this tired, you know, close to retirement cop. And he's seen it all. And he's just, he's conflicted with what's going on in the world and how he can do anything to change it. And then you've got this new guy who's excited to, you know, fight crime and to be in law enforcement and is gung-ho and wants to learn more and will shout out anything, which can make you look mm-hmm. stupid at times. But, you know, you're working through it when you're when you're in the younger uh, in that stage. So I really liked both of them playing together, but I thought Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Lee Jones was great. 
like you said, you know, you can really sympathize and, and feel feel for him and his struggle with what he was going through and trying to to help uh, Josh Brolin's character and trying to to get to him before anybody else. And it felt it felt like a really well rounded performance for me. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing I forgot about this is this movie is is very funny. The Coens obviously usually jump back and forth between comedy and drama, but usually their drama films as a whole are kind of funny. This is often looked at in their filmography as their most serious film. I laughed more times than I, I remembered, you know, there's a, there's a great line where Woody Harrelson is trying to describe the Anton Chigurh character, and he says, he doesn't have a sense of humor. And for some reason, that line just like really got to me and made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, watching it again so many times, I'll be able to understand the plot, know it inside and out, maybe really just sort of uh, be able to appreciate and focus on the wordplay that the Coens are so great at. Yeah, I mean, they're they're great at that. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, so I'm, I'm glad we were able to appropriately rate it where it is. But it is not our number one movie of the decade. No, we'll move on to one of my favorite movies of all time. Coming in at number one, Chicago from 2002. Like your hair, wear your buckle shoes. And all that jazz I hear Velma has it. I want a brand new start to do that. Roxy wants it. You got connections? I would have said anything to get a piece of that. Two death row murderesses develop a fierce rivalry while competing for publicity, celebrity, and a sleazy lawyer's attention. Um, Like I said, this is one of my favorite films, if not maybe number two of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I was super excited to watch this with you because, I mean, I've seen it a thousand times, but this is the one you hadn't seen. So I wanted to know if, you know, our friendship was still going to be there (laughs) post-watch. But I thought the performances were great. The choreography was great. The musical numbers are great. The story is amazing and fantastic. And you really get sucked into this this world and this time. and these ladies' characters, especially Roxy Hart, played by Renee Zellweger, and just understanding, you know, what her motives are, what her drive is, and how she can view things uh, while she's in prison and trying to get what she wants while still being behind bars. Yeah, this was the only movie of the 10 that I hadn't seen. So I was a little apprehensive going into it, especially knowing how much you loved it, whether or not I'd like it as well. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it did a terrific job, I think. Usually my problems with musical is is there's two different ways that I don't care for musicals. One, the entire plot is only revealed during songs, or songs are just thrown in for the sake of having people singing. And this is a movie that I think is able to balance that fine line very nicely, where we get some plot advancement in the songs, but a lot of it is character development and character development that actually really works in sort of setting up the stage and world. But I think more than anything, one thing that I appreciate the most is each number seemed to one-up the one before it, mm-hmm. that they're all unique. So often you you get someone just singing on a stage or the same set being home to several musical numbers, things like that. This seemed to be completely different every time they did it and did a great job of really showcasing different ways that you can perform a song and dance number. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, one of the driving forces behind that is this is essentially you could see this all taking place in Roxy Hart's mind and how she's viewing it and taking the information that's brought to her in every stage throughout this, the events of this film. And so going from this lowly housewife to someone who gains a little publicity to someone who has to fight to, you know, um, escape death row, you, you can see her creating these scenes and these crazy dramatic musical numbers from her learnings. Mm-hmm. I I think there's a couple that really stood up for me. I thought I really enjoyed Cell Block Tango, uh, which looked like it was inspired by Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock with its double-decker jail set and did a good job introducing a lot of the secondary background characters in the jail. Um, that was really fun. And then also Richard Gere's introduction. I can't remember the name of that song. Uh, it's a nice subversion of the ladies doing cabaret. And it's sort of, I think, 
one way that really showcases uh, the fact that this is a movie that mostly takes place in Roxy's imagination because he is introduced as this very humble guy that's just there to help people, which is the way he presents himself. But in reality, he's a much more of a sleazy lawyer. And that sort of showcases by the fact that he's taking off layers of his clothes, his humble clothes, and he's trying to show you who he really is. When in reality, he's nothing like the the man you think he is. Yeah, I think he's great. I mean, he's not the greatest singer, especially amongst the ones who are in this, but I think he does a really great job. And I really liked his character and what he brought to pretty much an all-female cast outside of him. Yeah, and there's John C. Riley as well, who, who has yeah, several that's right, that's right. big scenes. I quite appreciated his song as well. It was probably the most different from all of them, yeah. and maybe doesn't quite fit in perfectly, but I think John C. Riley really sells the performance and does a great job with it, that it works because of it. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't fit in either, his mm-hmm. character. I think that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. He's always outside the joke. He's outside of what's happening. He's not involved. Nobody even knows he's there or pays attention to him. He doesn't matter. So I think it, that's why it works for me in that he's so, his numbers are so different. Do you have a favorite number? Oh, good Lord. That's too hard. <laughs> you had to know I was going to ask you this. <laughs> all of them. Um, I'm a big fan of all that jazz, of course. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. But one of my most favorite ones, aside from Selbach Tongo also, because that is great, is um, when Roxy Hart is singing, oh, I forget the name of it now. I think it's called Funny Honey. Mm-hmm. Where she, it's basically, she's committed the murder and Amos is, you know, trying to plead guilty and say he did it in self-defense. So it's her, you know, saying how much she loves him and how great of a husband he is. And then he realizes that she was two-timing him and he kind of sells her out out of shock because I don't think he would actually do that in his actual character. So she turns around and starts singing about how, how like dumb and stupid he is and she that he ratted out on her and that's how what leads her to jail and i just really like that slow kind of it's a very sensual number and it's a really funny kind of quippy number Mm -hmm. i i appreciate in these that they also highlight the the need for both song and dancing to really tell the story um, where they're both so integral. And the dancing is fantastic in this. This is obviously a Bob Fosse production. Um, it's a musical that's been around since the 70s, a Broadway show. And his dance choreography really shines through of showing who these different people are, how different people dance. They're not all like a chorus line where everyone dances identically. So mm-hmm. it's something that works for this movie as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think also, you know, my, my sort of final thought on this is it doubles as a nice history lesson for the corruption of 1920 Chicago, mm-hmm. which is something that's kind of glossed over for the most part until the very end of the film. But looking back, really, the whole thing is is a nice allegory for the, the state of corruption in the city. And that's sort of been well-known corruption for the last 150 or so years of that city because it's been so intrinsically linked to uh, mob and corruption and, and bought-off politicians and police groups and things like that and so they think they do a good job of subtly infusing that history lesson to it yeah nothing beats fresh blood on the walls uh so there you have it that is our top 10 we're going to take a short break and when we come back we are going to give out our own awards what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss sir the most you ever lost on a coin toss i don't know i couldn't say Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. So, we just count down the top ten, and now we're going to give our own awards. So, first up, let's do our best picture. Stephanie, what do you have? Oh, best picture is definitely Chicago. Yeah. Top of my list going into this before I had seen, I mean, I would seen nine out of the ten, but top 
I wasn't sure if it was going to be beat out by Beautiful Mind or not. Of course, I knew it was not. And it still ended up at top of my list. For me, it is No Country for Old Men. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. Coen Brothers are my favorite directors of all time. So it really works the way everything sort of comes together. And, and possibly one of the most deserving Best Picture winners of all time. Uh, now we're going to move over to Best Actor. Stephanie, what do you have? For Best Actor, I chose Leonardo DiCaprio. I really appreciated what he brought to his character. Um, I could see the different uh, levels and layers that he was going through and his struggles through through the, the events that took place in that film. And I really appreciated him. And not only did I enjoy his character, but it made me relook at him as an actor himself, which I thought was great. So that's why I chose him. Uh, do you have any honorable mentions? Honorable mentions would probably be Russell Crowe from Gladiator. I thought this was also really well done. I mean, it's a very Russell Crowe-y um, role for him, so I didn't think it was too far of a stretch for him to play. But um, I really enjoyed his performance and believed it, and that's why he's my runner-up. For me, my winner is also Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, wow. uh, like you said, it uh, made you sort of revisit his career as a whole. Um the first few times that I watched it, I felt that he was a little too good of a guy, but re-watching it this time, I've noticed a bit more layers where he's able to kind of portray the messed up nature of his psyche mm -hmm. and that he isn't all good. Uh, and so I think that's something that really works for him in this. Mm -hmm. uh, my runner-up is actually Matt Damon from The Departed as mm -hmm. well. I think he does a great job. This movie wouldn't work if it, his performance wasn't also as strong as Leo's. Uh, and then Russell Crowe from Gladiator. His range works perfectly for this movie. Who do you have for Best Actress? For Best Actress, I have Renee Zellweger. I thought she was the epitome of what Roxy Hart is, should be, and will always be in my mind. Uh, she's a great singer, a great dancer, and just played it with such conviction. And I loved seeing her character arc and what she brought to it. And the runners-up? Um, I only have one runner-up, and I I chose Annette Benning as my runner-up. I thought she was great and fantastic, hilarious, had some depth to her character, as we already talked about. For me, I actually chose Hilary Swank from Million Dollar Baby. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that I really don't care for, and I think has not aged well at all but i think her charm and dedication to that character really shone through and and elevated the movie that could have been a whole lot worse um my runners up were renee zellweger and then annette benning mm -hmm. as well i think i think benning really did a lot there and i think once you get over a little bit of the the shrieking aspects of her character you really <laughs> sort of see a lot of the layers that she has to bring all right, moving on, we have Best Supporting Actor. For a supporting actor, I chose Javier Bardem. I think, you know, he won for a reason, and I totally agree with it. He played that character with conviction, and I would be haunted to my very depths if I knew he was after me. Mm. And what are your runners-up? Uh, for runners-up, this is a long one. So I have <laughs> Richard Gere as a runner-up. I thought he did really well. Um, and was fantastic. As we touched on, I thought Ben Affleck was amazing for what the amount of time he had on screen. And I really also appreciated Jeffrey Rush from Shakespeare in Love. Um, I also had Chris Cooper from American Beauty and Tommy Lee Jones. All right. That's a good list. Mm -hmm. This is going to be interesting. I chose Richard Gere. Oh, wow. I'm <laughs> shocked and I, amazed and love it. I, I really struggled between Gear and Bardem, and, and I almost switched it right now before I announced it. But uh, I, I really liked Richard Gere. I think he did, especially his, um, the puppet song. Yeah, yeah. Uh I can't think. I can't remember it. I don't know what it is. But that was one of my favorite numbers of the whole movie. I think he did a great job really selling it. Uh, he's someone who I don't usually think very highly of as an actor. But I thought he brought both a bit of an everyman quality and this sort of air of superiority and sleaziness to him. That I think he did a great job and, and really did the material well. My runner-up, of course, is Javier Bardem. He is the perfect villain, the perfect hunter, and someone that is going to haunt everyone's lives. And the fact that, like, Woody Harrelson says something along the lines of, you've seen him and you're still alive, I think really sort of sums up his entire character of no one gets out yeah. of his uh, web alive. <laughs> uh, and then Jack Nicholson, you know, just for the sheer over-the-topness, 
Um, he does a great job. Uh, Wes Bentley, I mentioned American Beauty, also did a really good job. And and really, I think this is the decade of really strong supporting actor performances. I can name basically everyone else in The Departed as well as, yeah. as a strong performance. I think what, why we have such long lists here is because a lot of these films were ensembles. So, or we could, could be considered ensembles. So there was a lot to choose from in the supporting character category. Mm-hmm. So who do you have for Best Supporting Actress? So for Supporting Actress, I had to go with Catherine Zeta-Jones. I thought she was the perfect yin to uh, Renee Zellweger's yang. They worked together great. Um, you felt their hatred for each other, and this is the only business that that actually works for them, is in show business, as we <laughs> learn in the end. So I had to go with her as well. And who are your supporting? Are your runners-up? My runners-up would be Queen Latifah, because I also thought she was fantastic in Chicago. Um, and I have Jennifer Connelly. Interesting. Uh, I agree with you. I put Catherine Zeta-Jones as my mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actress winner. Uh, both her introduction in All That Jazz and the final sequence, um, she really showcases a, a great range there. Uh and someone who's very seductive and, and has a lot going for her. And when things aren't going her way, the sort of frustration and watching the wheels spin on her is something that I think she does really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I appreciated that. Someone we didn't talk about is Kelly McDonald from No Country for Old Men. I think really the final scene that she's in when she meets up with Anton Chigurh and he wants her to call heads or tails and she sort of gives him a... Uh, a nice speech about the coin doesn't choose her fate. He chooses her fate. Uh, it was a really good job and, and makes you really feel for that character and kind of make your heart ache at her ending. Yeah, I, w- I wish I had remembered to put her on my runner-up list. I think that's a great pick. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Queen Latifah as well. I think mm-hmm. she does a good job. Uh, doesn't really stand out as much to the other, the yeah. other two women, but uh, the screen time that she's given, she kind of does make it count. Yeah. So there you have it. Those are our picks for our Oscars that we would hand out. Uh, Let us know what you would put. You can follow the show on social media at ContraZoomPod, both all on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. What was your favorite film of the decade? Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on these two episodes. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. We uh, will hopefully get to the next decade, probably sometime in the next year, especially considering with how things are going, where there isn't a lot of movie watching to be done. Um, But yeah, we'll, we'll figure something out. Thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show and Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music. And thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podcast Static. It can go on and on. It is all there. But thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.